Father in heaven, it truly is a privilege for us to be here in this day and to be able to gather around thy word. Lord, we're thankful for the fellowship that we can experience as we do so, as we come into thy house, and for the moving of thy spirit that we could already experience in the Bible class. And and now, Father, as we look into your word, we would anticipate your blessings and, and give thee thanks for it. Lord, we're mindful of many who have traveled away and are even traveling as we speak. Pray that your spirit would be upon them and your protecting hand be upon them. Pray that you'd be with those who are not able to be here in this day. Pray for Brother Urs, who's on his back at home uh, in pain, and, and Lord, pray that he could have relief from his suffering. And Lord, pray that for those who chose not to be here in this day, Lord, that you would minister to them as well. Lord, we, we're so thankful again for this privilege, but now as we look into your word, we'll pray that presence be with us, and for it, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, ask you to turn with me to Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, and actually some of chapter 2 also. Um, was really, it's interesting, I was led to the beginning of chapter 2. I was just fascinated by a couple of details in the, the story of the marriage in Cana. But as I was reading... Um, I just kept being drawn back to the references the way that John writes this. And he says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, and the third day. Well, it made me think, well, there had to be something just previous to that. Well, and then chapter 1, we see at one point it says the day following. And then a little before that, it says the day following. So point being, I was struck by this window of time that effectively um, becomes Jesus calling some of his disciples, some of his first disciples, and the transition from John to uh, John the Baptist to Jesus and into this first miracle. And I'll confess that as I, even as I was studying this, I, I don't have, didn't have an inspiration in my study as, as far as like some overarching theme, some big thesis statement, which I usually try to have, but more that there were these individual experiences and um, just tidbits that I thought it would be good for us to, uh, to look into this morning and, and trust that God will add maybe the overarching theme by the time we get to the end of it here. And I'll also give you the disclaimer. Some of this, probably in my mind's eye, as um, folks would say it, probably has been um, framed by the Chosen. The fact that we have this visual now that some of us have seen, it, it gives a little bit of a, a perspective. I don't want that to take over the thoughts as we read them this morning, but um, I may try to describe some of those things uh, so that we can have something a little more visual in our minds. So I'd like to start uh, with verse 19 in chapter 1 of John. And this is the record of John, whom the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I'm not. Art thou a prophet? And he said, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, 
I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah. And they went, and they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elias, neither the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is, who becoming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. We'll just, I guess we'll stop just for a moment at this first piece. We know from the other Gospels um, the experience that John had with Jesus and, and Jesus being baptized by John. But I, I, was, I don't know if we often appreciate enough who John was or, or what kind of reputation he would have had, what, what position he would have had as being the forerunner of Christ, the, 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 the one proclaiming him as this the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, in a minute, we're going to read the next couple of verses that will talk about how his disciples, two of his disciples, went and became disciples of Jesus. So you have this man, this hairy, scary, crazy-looking guy that's living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, has these disciples, and, and he's, he's preaching, and people are following him. But if you think of what that visual looks like, I mean, I, there's a guy, maybe Uncle Amos has seen him too because we work in a similar area. There's a guy that is homeless, and he stands on the corner of Geddes and Erie Boulevard, and right by the Arby's there. And he is, I mean, you can ask Ashley. He is one of the scariest looking people you've ever seen. Just hair all over and disheveled. And like, when I think of what John probably looked like, it's something like that. Some worn out, scary, um, hairy, like, and, and just yelling. You know, he, he says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Declare you the way of, or prepare you the way of the Lord. And you wonder what would have been attractive. Like the message clearly was attractive enough because there were people that were following. He had disciples, but he's coming from the most unlikely spot, from the, the most unlikely vessel, I guess I would describe it. And so the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, in our day, maybe religion isn't the right kind of person to frame it, but Whoever the magistrate is at the time has to go out and figure out who is this guy? What, what is he? Where is he coming from? What is he saying? Is he dangerous? It's probably the first question they've got. Is he safe? And they come to him. And, and I mean, he can have a, a good conversation. It's not like he's a crazy person. But he has this conversation with them where they ask, who are you? You know, they're leading him on. Are you, are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? You know, these leading questions that are almost, they seem to be um, raised in such a way as to, to get him to incriminate himself, to get him to say something blasphemous. And he answers correctly, he answers honestly, but in, he answers in such a way that he, he doesn't give them ammunition for, um, you know, pulling him into prison or, or charging him with anything, but he just raises the stakes as he tells them, um, 
uh, he it is who is coming after me, who is a preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy to unloose. You know, he's here among you, the Messiah. This person that, you, you know, you're trying to lead me on to say that I'm the Messiah or that I'm um, the reincarnation of somebody. You know, I'm not even going to go there. But he, the Savior, the Master, the Messiah, is here among you. We'll keep going in verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After he cometh, a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and upon, abode upon him. And I knew him not, but that sent me, excuse me, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So, John is standing in the way. He's, he's out there past, uh, past Jordan, whatever the name of that little town was, Bethabara. And it says that he sees Jesus coming. And in the same way that John's made these big, bold statements, you imagine him just yelling out to the crowd that's all around, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. At this point, who's with Jesus? Nobody. There's, there's no crowd with him at this point. The crowd is there to see John. And all of a sudden, John stands up and declares that right here in front of us is, Behold the Lamb of God. And he goes on to describe how he knows who Jesus is. I mean, he doesn't say, well, this is my cousin. We grew up, you know, my mom and his mom were close. And they have this funny story about when we were both in the womb that I was kicking and he was kicking. and None of that. The relationship is, is not a familial one at this point. It is, I saw, I saw the Spirit descend upon him. And, this, and, and how God told me that I was supposed to baptize with water, the same told me that upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. This is the Messiah. He's the one. Who, he who I have been proclaiming unto you, this is the one standing in front of you. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, after John stood, and the two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he said unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And we'll stop actually there for a second. So the first disciples that we have, you know, this is all in the, the series of a couple of days, right? It says, and the next day. So John makes this big statement, Behold the Lamb of God. The next day, his disciples 
are, are with him. And it, it's, I think we can, we can say the assumption is that it's, well, Andrew for certain is one of John's disciples. And then the other assumption is that the apostle John, it was the other disciple. It's not named here, but just by the way that um, it's described and the way that he doesn't reference himself, we make the assumption that it's Andrew and John are those first two disciples. But they followed, they followed this crazy person. They followed John for some number of years, we would imagine. And now John gets to the point of being able to declare that, that he, he who he had prophesied about, he who was prophesied and who John had been declaring is now before them. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And almost instantly, these two disciples hear that statement and follow Jesus. The transition, the handoff from one leader to the, to the next takes place. But this is a different kind of teacher. Now, we, we know, obviously, we know the whole story. We know Jesus' disposition and his de- demeanor being so much different than John's. But imagine what that transition would be like. So you, you have your teacher who's, who's taught you and prepared you for, for the coming Messiah. And then he's declared unto you, he's revealed, he's, he shows himself, and, and your teacher effectively hands you off. You've graduated to the, next, to the next class, the next rabbi's class. And Jesus isn't saying anything. You know, he's just getting his start. It's, it's almost interesting. You would imagine, if, if, if you're the disciples, you probably imagine that you'd be joining somebody who, who's established. He's a, a rabbi in the synagogue somewhere, or he has... You know, he has a following somewhere else, or, you know, at least he's got a, a school or a house that he can teach them in. And, and so they turn to him and they say, or he asks, what seek ye? And they say, well, where, where do you live? Or where, where are we going? What are we doing? And he says, come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt. It doesn't say that it was anything impressive, but they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed was, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, Andrew then, first findeth his own brother, Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus beheld him, said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is being interpretation a stone. Now I'm sure there were details of this. Sorry, I keep starting and stopping. You can... Don't have to follow along. I'm sure there's details of this that are left out. There, there's John, this is the, the last gospel that was written. John summarizes a lot of things. And, you know, I, I found it interesting that this was a, sequ- a sequential record here. But I'm sure that there was other details that we, we don't have in these verses. But I just imagine John, excuse me, Andrew, his interaction with Jesus is still so short. He meets Jesus in the afternoon. He stays over at his house. The next day, the very next day, he goes and finds his brother and says, we found the Messiah. What kind of impression did Jesus make on him in those few short hours? How, how remarkable, how impressive was that experience that he had with him in those few short hours that the very next day he goes to his brother and says we found the messiah 
and is persuasive enough to his brother that his brother, Peter, comes and says, okay, I'm going I'm to come find out. I'm going to come see. Now we know Peter's impulsive, so maybe it didn't take much to get him to, to come. But he brings him to Jesus. Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, You're Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, which is by interpretation a stone. And we know the significance of years down the road that, you know, on this rock I'll build my church. But these first, first impressions, these first experiences that these men make with Jesus and have these powerful statements being made about their lives or transition, excuse me, not transitions, but these, um, yeah, these transitions that are taking place in their lives based on such small or what would seem to be such small interactions with the Lord. Okay, then the following day. So right now we're on day two, I think. Day three. The following day, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. And he finds Philip and says unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Again, just stopping. So he's... He's in a fishing town. Bethsaida is this fishing town um, on the Sea of Galilee. These men probably know each other. They're, you know, they're all fishermen. They're from a, a small town. And now as they're all being called up to the Father, or called up to, to Jesus to, to be followers, they continue going through the, through the town. And in 45, Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing kind of come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. So, clearly Philip is somebody that has been looking for the Messiah, somebody that has been studying Scripture, somebody that was, was learned in the Law and the Prophets and in, in all of the prophecies that would come. Because when Jesus sees him and says, Follow me, he immediately does so, and that acknowledgement, that, that following right away is enough for him to have the confidence to say that we've, we've found the one that the prophets told us about. God's promise to us uh, is being fulfilled, and Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, is come. Now, Nathaniel has an interesting response. Nathaniel's response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, well, let me, this is where this interaction just strikes me. The whole experience of Nathaniel. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says unto him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathaniel said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Have you ever had the experience where you put your foot squarely in your mouth? Where you make a statement that comes back to just bite you? That I can, I'm not even going to give you an example because I've got too many that I, I could share, which probably surprises nobody in here. But this, this, just use this one as the, the specific example. Your friend comes up to you, 
He comes up to you, he's all excited, and he makes this wild statement that we found the Messiah, the one that we were planning, that we've been looking for, that we've been planning for, that everybody's been hoping for. We found him. He's here. His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And you probably have heard Philip come up and be excited about stuff in the past. He's probably a little, you know, too excitable at times. And you're like, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? It's like somebody making a big statement of like, like I, I found this nuclear site. No, let's not, we'll do a better one. Um, well, I went to Onondaga Central. When athletes started coming out of Onondaga Central, the rest of the world went, where, how on earth is somebody athletic going to come out of Onondaga Central? This, it doesn't make any sense. It's a flippant comment. It, he, I'm sure he didn't mean it at the time to be something of prejudice. Like if you look at Bible scholars, they, they pull out here that you know, he, was, he was prejudiced because this was, they were of a different uh, ethnic background. And I'm like, I, Jesus wouldn't have said an Israelite in whom is no guile, unless he was being sarcastic, if he really thought that there was prejudice in uh, Nathaniel's life or in his heart. But you've made this statement. It's now out there. And all of a sudden, Jesus, you come upon Jesus. Nathaniel, I mean, he's a good enough friend to Philip that he follows. He goes and sees him. And this man says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathaniel says unto him, Whence knowest thou me? How, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending or ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This experience that Nathaniel made, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, but the inference, and I, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb, I'm going to propose that Philip was, take, was, was having some time of study. Philip was in some contemplative state, probably on spiritual things, because it says Jesus said, or excuse me, because Jesus said he saw him before Philip ever came. Before Philip came and said anything to Nathaniel, Nathaniel was already searching. He was, he was thinking upon um, spiritual things and, and probably questioning many things. And it says that's when Jesus saw him. And by revealing that fact, the fact that Jesus saw him when he was having that experience, Nathaniel responds, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. That, the simple fact, the simple fact of being able to point out where Jesus had seen him, where Jesus had, had realized him or noticed him or whatever, that simple fact was enough for Nathaniel to confirm in his heart and, and proclaim with his mouth that Jesus was the Son of God, the King of Israel. What kind of experience was that? What kind of revelation was that to him? And, and what, what, 
What kind of revelations should I have in my life when Jesus points out, when the Spirit points out experiences that I've made, when, when He points out um, ways that He's moved in my life or my family's life or in our, in our church family's life and directed the path uh, for our lives? When we see those things and He points those things out, do, do they have the same impression on me or impact on me that this had on Nathaniel? Do I, do I stop in my tracks and say, behold the Son of God? Do I acknowledge God's presence and his actions in my life in the same way that, that these men did? And Jesus, he says, because you... <laughs> Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you, you believe? I mean, that, that's, that's all it took? Just buckle up, because Verily I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He kind of echoes back what John said that he saw earlier. He, he says, we can remember what John said. You know, this is how it was confirmed to me that he was the Son of God. And Jesus is now telling his disciples, you're going to see the same thing. You think it was a big deal that I said I saw you under the fig tree? Wait till you see angels descending from heaven upon the Son of Man. These, these experiences that they're making, and imagine that the rest of the disciples are still standing there with him. You know, this is a conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel, but, but the others are there with him. And they're just getting ready now. This is the first few days of his ministry. And they're following. And we're going to continue just a couple more verses in chapter 2. It says, in the third day. So, correction. It was the first two days. Now we're in the third day of his ministry. And there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And they wanted wine. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus came unto him or excuse me, said unto him, they have no wine. So this is where the tone of this, of this message, I guess, changes a little bit here. We have these monumental experiences that, that they're making, that proclamations of, of angels descending and ascending from heaven and revelations of who Christ is. And, and then we have a really practical situation. We have a family wedding. Now, it's a Jewish wedding. I've not been to a Jewish wedding I've seen them on TV, and they look like quite, quite the shindig. Um, I went to a big Catholic wedding a couple years ago, and that was a thing. That was impressive. So I'm, this is going to be my... I'm probably going to hearken into that when I'm thinking about this, but this is a monumental experience. This is a... It's a time for the families to show off a little bit, and at the same time, there are so many opportunities for embarrassment. There are so many opportunities for things to go wrong. And so it, it feels like we can, um, I don't know why we assume this, but it feels like this may have even been a relation to Mary, or maybe this was just Mary's way of getting involved in everything. But the wedding has been going on for some time. Jesus is there with his disciples. They're probably enjoying themselves. It's a festive place. And when they wanted more wine, the mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no wine. Now, how you run out of wine, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I'm also the guy 
that freaks out about running out of anything when you're feeding people. Like, I don't know. That's, I, I know it's a joke. It's always been a joke. Like, if I'm in a kitchen, we're making twice as much as we need. I just because I would rather stress, I'd rather stress about where to put it afterwards than not have enough. And then uh, for youth choir, we ran out of something. No, it wasn't youth choir. I was cooking something else, so we ran out of something. And I, I still have nightmares about this. Mom's laughing. My wife still doesn't like to talk about it. I, it stresses me out endlessly that we started running out. Something, there wasn't enough. And wine is not like salad. You can't just open a bag and make more. This is a, a difficult thing. And it, you know, you're getting towards the end of the night, and there's, there's not enough. And so she comes to her son and says, we have no wine. What would you like me to do about it? Like, I, you, know, you can't go buy more. But I can imagine my mom coming to me and saying, we need, there's a problem. We need you to fix it. What I can't imagine is me responding with, woman, what have I to do with thee? I'm not trying to, this is funny, right? Like this, ha, there's no way around this being funny. Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. Now, right off the bat, he, he recognizes that his mom has just asked him to perform a miracle. Now, maybe in her mind, the miracle was going to be send all of your little friends that here are around you. There's at least five guys at this point. Have them go scour and figure out how much wine they can go find in Cana. There's got to be another, there's obviously not a wine store, but there's got to be some other wine in some other people's houses. Go send them around. But Jesus interprets it right off the bat. Mine hour has not yet come. But she's not dissuaded by this. She's not, she's not taking no for an answer. I mean, he's just told her, I'm not declaring myself Messiah yet. I, my, this, I'm not ready. Woman, I'm not ready. And in typical motherly fashion, she's like, turn to the servants. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says unto you, go do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the, manner, after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Just for what it's worth, I was curious, 20 to 30 gallons per firkin. So there's a lot of water that's going to be converted here. So we've got all these pots. She says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. And in that moment, I wonder what Jesus is thinking. Because he's standing there, he's already told her, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do it. It's not my time. He doesn't say it, but they'll get by without a little more wine. It's not that big a deal. But somewhere in verse 6, a transition takes place and he makes a choice. He makes the choice to reveal himself. He makes the choice to step out and to begin, begin his ministry. And it's, it's not in the way that he, you know, it's not the way that we would have expected. He just a couple minutes ago or a day ago, was talking about angels descending and ascending and, you know, that the, the Spirit was going to come upon him. And, and now he's like, I'm, I'm here at a wedding. Somebody, poor, or somebody planned poorly. They don't have enough wine. Or some more people showed up that we weren't expecting and it's all consumed. And now this is how I'm going to reveal myself. And he decides and makes the choice that, that he would. And so Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. 
And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants that drew it knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when the men have well drunk, then they have that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Just imagine that. It doesn't say that he, you know, this was not the feeding of the 5,000. This wasn't the um, taking the little boy's lunch and praying over it and then breaking it and it just kept multiplying. This was literally fill the pots, take a scoop of it, and go take it to the master of the, of the wedding. Don't, don't take it and, and try it. You know, th- it would have seemed logical to me to, okay, just try a little bit and see if this is going to pass. Like, um, see, see if it's okay, or just start spreading it around. No, with the confidence to make a statement, he says, take it out and take it right to the, to the, uh, the most critical guy here. Take it to the, the judge. Take it to the one who is going to make the, the, the biggest statement about it. It says, when the ruler had tasted the water that was made to wine, obviously not knowing where it came from, he makes this, this compliment or this wonderful statement to the family giving the, the, uh, giving the, the wedding, the feast. That, you know what, most of the time, you try to bamboozle us and give us you know, the good stuff at the beginning, and by the end of the night, it's all watered down and gross. And no, you've given the best right at the beginning. Or right at the end here. You save the best for last. In verse 11, well, this will be the last one for this morning. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This was not the kind... This doesn't seem like the kind of miracle or the kind of miraculous statement that you would expect from the Son of God revealing himself and beginning, beginning his ministry. It doesn't, he didn't heal anybody. Um, he, he didn't raise the dead. He didn't, it doesn't have the, the spiritual connotations that, that we would have expected. And I and I, I wonder about that. And, and you know, you can look in. You could use so many imagery, uh, so much imagery in this, and talk about how you know when Jesus fills us, He fills us to the brim. He doesn't leave any lacking in the pots. You know, that's one beautiful statement you could make. Um, the transformation that He makes in our lives is one where it's it's a beautiful trans beautiful transformation, and we're not recognizable to our old selves. Our our new nature should not. Our new life should not be in any way recognizable to our old life. But I just look at it as the practicality of this in some, in some respects and, and what the other folks around must have been thinking. You know, what were the other disciples thinking when they heard Jesus look at his mom and say, Woman, what am I supposed to do? My hour has not yet come. I've been in situations where I've seen people talk to their parents that way and gone, Ooh, that's not like you got something else coming. If I heard my kids talk to them, the, the day that Ethan or Ellie or Max calls their mom woman is a bad day, right, Ethan? 
But just those experiences, and I guess what I'm, what I'm hoping we can do as we read through these, the, the Gospels again, and we're, we're doing it really wonderfully in, in our study in Luke too, but the practical nature of, of some of these scriptures that we read and the, the personal side of it, that these are real people. I mean, it's, it's often, we often look at the Gospels and go, oh, I read the whole thing in an afternoon, and, but this is three years of Jesus' life that we were trying to cramp down into these little details. And this, was, this was the shot of three days. Three days that these folks were experiencing it. And the, the transition of their lives, the forsaking of all of their, their old earthly possessions, and now following this man and, and having him reveal himself to them, and the first miracle, and it's not what you're expecting, but it also is making this, um, this huge impression on him and in all the other people around him. We're not going to do it today, but the next, the next day, or after the next few days, it says there are not many days pass, and he goes into the temple. On Passover, and this is the one where he flips over the tables. And this man that we, by the end of his life, know as meek and quiet and, and how he, he teaches, um, teaches that way, his first two experiences, one is turning water into wine, the second one is flipping over the tables. The, the, the first impression that his disciples are getting, him, getting of him are not what we probably would have otherwise expected. And so... Maybe the theme, as it's, it's kind of coming to my mind now as, I'm, as we're closing. Sometimes I have expectations of God as to how he's going to, to work or how he's going to, to reveal something to me or even to, to our kids, to our, um, to our children as we're, we're trying to teach them something, trying to teach them a spiritual, a, a spiritual topic or a spiritual lesson. The lesson may not be the same, it may not come in the same delivery as it did for me. I mean, this has been, as we're talking with Ethan, you know, my, my spiritual experience with God is, was, was mine personally. And his is going to be his personally. It's different. And as much as a dad wants to, to describe, well, when this happened to me, this is, how it, this is how it unfolded. And when it happened to mom, this is how it unfolded. But everybody's different. And all of our reactions and interactions with the Father are different. Every one of these disciples was called in a different way. Some, Philip, Jesus just walked by him and said, follow me, and Philip came immediately. Nathaniel was preparing himself, was preparing himself in a way that he probably didn't understand and learning lessons that he couldn't appreciate and was, was contemplating. And then his friend comes and says, I found him. The one that we were all praying for, I found him. And his first reaction is, that's impossible. How is, it's, it's not, it's, no matter how much I've studied, it's impossible for him to come. And then Jesus reveals himself to him saying that, I saw you before Philip even talked to you. That's the same way that it is for each of us. We, the revelation that God makes in our lives is something that he has, he's begun long before we ever see it. Long before we ever appreciate what God is doing in our lives, He's setting the building blocks, the foundation stones. I had to chuckle last week. I'm, we're in Warren, and um, the Blumels were not there. They, they were, they were uh, traveling with the choristers last weekend, and so we were there. But I couldn't believe how many times in Bible class and in the morning service there were little anecdotes of experiences that 
I remembered them from my childhood. Sunday school lessons, I remember Aunt Lydia teaching when I was in her class, came up when we were having the, the morning service. And I just had to chuckle that, you know, the, the little building blocks. And who, who would have thought 30 years ago when I was in Sunday school with her that they'd be in Warren of all places? They'd be literally keeping that little church together, like holding it together. What, God knew. God knows those things. God knew before, we don't have to get into, there are a thousand experiences like that where if we, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how God has moved. And, and the key being to me today is when I can't see what tomorrow is supposed to be, when I don't feel like I have the answer for the question that might come up, for the direction that we need, to recognize that the Lord's already seen the end of that. He already has plotted, plotted the path for us. And the question is, are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust him when, like, he said to Philip, follow me? Are we going to trust when we get the advice of one of our loved ones that comes and says, I, I, I found him. I, I have an answer here. I've made an experience. God's made this experience in my life, and I want to share it with you. Are we going to trust that God is still working that way? I pray that we can take those I guess, for lack of a better word, those seemingly, in, seemingly insignificant moments with him and, and use them to build to a, a deeper and stronger relationship with him as well.